Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Tom Fail. He's a, an ecologist, a research scientist at the Czech Academy of Sciences. And right now he's uh, located physically in Borneo in uh, Malaysia. And we're going to talk about ants and uh, their ecology and, and I guess various effects uh, that, that ants experience out there in the world. So. Tom, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Richard. Yeah, tell me about your research. What is it about? So I'm an ecologist and I'm interested in interaction networks. So all species that live in the natural world interact with each other in some way. And I see the world as one enormous network of interactions between all these species. And I'm interested in studying those networks and seeing how they change in relation to the environment. So that might be natural environments, like looking at different elevations up a mountainside and see how that change in temperature affects the network. But that might also be uh, changes it, that we're causing as humans to the, natural, to, to the natural environment. So things like clearance of land, clearance of natural forest for plantation, um, also things like ongoing global climate change. And I want to understand how all of those things affect uh, species interaction networks. And my, my main focus is how ants interact with other species. So that covers things like ant mutualisms with plants, where the ants and the plants are helping each other, um, competition between different species of ants, ant predation on other organisms, so sort of mainly other insects when ants eat other insects, and ants acting as sort of prey organisms for other species. So, for example, frogs eating ants. Yeah, so that's the sort of over, overarching theme of my research. How do ants tend to interact with plants? Do they just see them as food, or is there more sophisticated types type interactions there? So, for the most part, ants don't eat plants. The one exception to that are the leafcutter ants, which... Um, that, that the, the ants themselves don't directly eat the plants, but they will bring the leaves back to their colony where they cultivate fungus on those leaves and use that as food. Uh, my main interest is um, sort of pos more positive interactions between ants and plants, so mutualisms. And mutualism is an ecological interaction where the two different species involved uh, have some positive effect on each other and uh, the systems that, that, that I mainly look at are those where ants live inside plants. So uh, an entire colony of ants can live inside a plant and they will do various things for the plant. So they can protect the plant from herbivorous insects. So the insects that eat leaves, uh, for example, if there's a caterpillar on the leaf of the plant, the ants will come out and they will attack the caterpillar and eat it or drive it away. They can also sometimes clean the plants so they can trim encroaching vines and lianas 
from the leaves of the plant and that helps the plant to grow and they can even clean the surface of the leaves from sort of small epiphytes and lichens and things and in return the plant provides the ants with living space so some plants grow special structures called domatia um, this is a sort of ant housing a hollow structure for the ant colony to live in and the plant also provides sometimes the ants with food so this can be sort of liquid sugar from extra floral nectaries that means nectar that's not from flowers uh, and also food bodies so it will grow sort of small spherical food bodies that the ants can eat and some ants are so invested in this interaction that they can only eat the food that the plant provides um, they won't eat any other food so in fact if there's a caterpillar on a leaf some of these ants will attack the caterpillar and just throw it off. They won't eat it. Well, you mentioned earlier that ants will sometimes take back leaves to cultivate fungi on them. Like, I mean, how could how could ants know so much about these plants? How could they know that there's fungi on them and that they can cultivate them and that they should you know, take the leaves back? So I, so I should say the, the ants that grow the fungi are not the same ones that live inside the plants. So leafcutter ants, the, the ones that cultivate the fungi, don't. They live um, sort of outside of plants on the forest floor for the most part. The ants that live inside the plants, I think, just will kind of trim anything that's on the plant itself. I, I guess they can smell what's a part of their plant and what's not a part of their plant and they they act accordingly and they try and keep the plant clean and there's a there's a sort of to illustrate what i mean by the mutualism there's a uh, the sort of benefit to the ants of doing this is that if they maintain a healthy plant then the plant will grow larger and there will be more living space and food for the ants and so that means that the ant colony can grow larger so you can see that the sort of the positive outcomes are tied to each other for both the ants and the plants and there are benefits um, to both the ant and the plant of helping the other partner in the mutualism. Yeah, I mean, that's, no, that's amazing. Huh. So there's some ants that literally live, where do they, if they live inside a plant, like, where do they live? Like, you know, in and amongst the roots, or do they live, I mean, how do they literally live inside of a plant? So it varies. So some plants have um, a hollow main stem. So a, a bit like, I guess, a bamboo or something, although there aren't that many bamboos that are ant plants, there are some, but these are sort of free, freestanding woody, woody plants. And if you cut them open, you will find the stem is hollow and sort of almost completely full of ants. Um, and if you brush against one of these plants in the forest, they'll kind of come swarming out and sort of bite and sting you. They're quite protective about their plants. Other ant plants form, um, form sort of... Sort of external domatia, you can see kind of cup shaped um, growths on the outside of the plants. And um, in, in some plants, actually, the ants will live with the plants, but not in a sort of plant grown structure. So, this is the case for the uh, epiphytic ferns that I studied during my PhD. These are uh, they're quite popular house plants, actually. Um, they're also called trash basket ferns, I think. And uh, so they're epiphytic. They live up in the forest canopy. Um, they're not parasitic. They don't rely on the tree for their nutrients. They instead intercept falling leaf litter from the tree itself. And this falls into a broad rosette of fronds. They have um, large, simple fronds that collect this leaf litter as it falls down. That's why they're called trash basket ferns. And this leaf litter then decomposes 
sort of inside the fern core, assisted by all of the invertebrates, all of the insects and other things living inside the fern. And this is where the fern gets its nutrients from. And as a result of that, what you have is pretty much a sort of ball of kind of decomposing soil and leaf litter uh, up in the canopy. And the canopy is a very hot, dry place, usually in, in tropical forests. And so having this kind of cool, damp ball of soil up there is a very attractive resource for lots of different arthropods, but also for ants as well. And in this case, the ants are just living in this sort of ball of soil. They're not living in these sort of fern-grown structures. So this is a slightly different situation to what I talked about, where the ants were living inside the main stem of the plant, where it was a much tighter mutualism. The situation that I found in my PhD was more a sort of byproduct mutualism. So the the fern happens to provide a living space for the ants because it has to digest all this leaf litter anyway. And in fact, the ants also provide a sort of service for the fern. Again, they, they kind of go and clean the, the leaves of any caterpillars and other things like that. But they don't do it quite as actively as they would uh, in a, a proper ant plant. So, yeah, so there are a, a range of different parts of the of the plant that, that ants can live in. So you're saying that the canopy ants, though, are they taking leaves and kind of mulching them in a spot? Or, you know, how are they, how are they creating this, as you described, a ball of soil and maybe dead organic matter? Is that happening at the ground level or up in a canopy? So, so up in the canopy, actually, to the extent that you actually get things like earthworms living up inside these ferns, um, even 30 or 40 metres up into the forest canopy. It's not so much that the ants are bringing the soil, uh, bringing much matter back to the nest, although they may do that. I don't think anyone's looked at that. It's more that these these ferns are collecting all of the falling leaves from the trees above them and sort of funneling them down into the sort of the base of the, the fern where they gradually decompose and the the ants will facilitate that by burrowing through the sort of the core of the fern and moving matter about but there are lots of other invertebrate species invertebrate groups living inside the ferns that were that, that will directly assist in the decomposition of that leaf litter things like millipedes and cockroaches isopods so wood lice and things like that so there's a whole like, well, it's not a microenvironment, but just a, a local sort of ecological microcosm in, in these ferns, huh? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So they're sort of islands of sort of things that you would normally find, expect to find down on the ground, but held tens of meters up in the forest canopy. And actually, I, I sort of I, I used this idea as part of my PhD work a little while ago now to look at the way that ants compete with each other different ants compete with each other so these ferns grow to be so large that you can get many different colonies of ants all living together inside a different fern and i use this as a sort of model system to look at how all of those different species of ants could live with each other and we noticed when we were doing surveys of these ants in these ferns that you, you tended not to get uh, lots of species of ants that were all the same body size, all living together. So I wanted to see whether that was because ant species that were the same body size sort of interacted aggressively with each other. And I did some experiments in the laboratory, and we found that indeed, if you try and introduce a similar sized ant into the fern, then um, it will be repelled by the, the resident ant living inside the fern. Uh, and we finally went on to model that at the level of an entire forest. 
and simulated the colonization of the ferns by the ants and found that you got something quite similar to what you saw in the forest in terms of the distribution of ant species between the ferns. When you use this body size sort of species assembly rule uh, in, in terms of dictating how the species could colonize the ferns. So, and, and, and the ants aren't the only things in the ferns, they're the, they're the most sort of abundant and sort of probably the, the things with the highest overall biomass in the ferns, but there's a whole range of other, other groups that live in there. And the, the group that I did my PhD with uh, in Cambridge in the UK, uh, have, been, have been studying those ferns for um, I think a, a couple of decades now uh, under the supervision of my PhD supervisor, William Foster. So there's, there's, a, there's a whole range of literature out there looking at all the different groups living inside the ferns, not just the ants, which was my speciality. So are these like, I'm trying to look at pictures, are these like tree ferns or what? That's right, yes. Yeah. So bird's nest ferns, if you if you sort of want to look that up you you get them all through the old world the old world tropics um so all the way from africa down through southeast asia through papua new guinea and into australia there's a few different species uh there's there's also a, a sort of a species complex that isn't taxonomically well resolved at the moment but they all do more or less the same thing they all collect falling leaf litter from the forest above oh interesting yeah, I've heard that um, there are some plants that when they're attacked, they'll actually call in, you know, they chemically signal ants to come defend the plants. Have you observed something like that? Not, no, I haven't actually. Um, I, I know that there's been some work looking at parasitoids, so things that um, insects that will come and lay their eggs on the caterpillars and the eggs will develop inside the caterpillar, eventually killing it, um, and the tree emits a sort of a pheromone basically that will attract these parasitoids in to lay eggs on caterpillars so that the caterpillars don't eat the tree. I'm not aware of the plant, uh, of any studies looking at showing that plants sort of call for help to ants from, from outside the plant. As far as I understand it, the ants that live inside the plants usually respond to sort of physical movement of the plant itself. I, of course, ants do use chemicals to recruit so one so the, the in ant plants the ants will normally be patrolling on the surfaces of the leaves so there'll always be some ants moving around uh, looking for any insects that are coming to attack those leaves and if there's a caterpillar or some other leaf-eating insect sitting on a leaf if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes one of these patrollers will find it and then we'll return to the nest, maybe laying a pheromone trail. And that will cause all of the other ants along the way and back in the nest to then follow that trail and go to the caterpillar and sort of attack it en masse and either eat it or drive it away. Um, so the ants can kind of inter uh, call to each other chemically. But I'm, I'm not aware of the plant being able to call remotely to the ant. So there maybe there is a study about that. The sort of chemical ecology isn't so much my area. Well, what's the tightest association or mutualism or collaboration you've observed between ants and plants? A, a lot of these mutualisms, people like to think that all of these sorts of mutualisms are really specific and there's just one ant species and just one plant species, but often they're less specific than that. 
any one plant species could be occupied by multiple ant species and any one ant species could go to multiple plant species. But there are some some mutualisms here in Borneo where you have one chromatogaster ant, so this is the genus of ant, these are called acrobat ants, they lift their, um, their abdomen up in the air uh, almost vertically when they're running around, particularly when they're alarmed. Um, they're very distinctive to see. And they form a mutualism with plants uh, in the genus Macaranga. So this is an early succession plant, one that comes into areas after there's been a disturbance. And for some of these relationships, you have only one ant species that can live in that particular Macaranga species. And the Macaranga species uh, sort of only ever interacts with this ant. So it's a complete kind of one-to-one -one relationship. And if the plant fails to be colonized by an ant colony this happens quite early on in the plant's development maybe when it's about sort of it varies between species but between kind of five and five centimeters and maybe a meter in height uh, a winged queen ant will come in and she will land on the plant she will shed her wings and she will dig into the central stem and there will be a sort of hollow cavity waiting for her there in most of these plants and in Many of these Macaranga species, if the ant, if the plant doesn't get colonized by the ant fairly early on, uh, then it cannot live, it cannot grow. So it's a completely obligate mutualism. And this is probably because the ants are so heavily relied on by the plant for protecting it from these leaf eating insects that the plant doesn't make doesn't have any other defense it doesn't make nasty chemicals in its leaves it doesn't have um sort of hairy leaves to stop anything from eating it so if it's not colonized by the ant it's uh, sort of completely unviable as a tree and likewise um we've never found any of these sort of specific ant species nesting anywhere else in the forest not in other tree species and not on the sort of on the ground in the leaf litter or elsewhere up in the canopy hmm. interesting do ants compete for a uh, like a mutualistic spot with a given plant? Like you said in these uh, in these giant ferns, there'll be multiple different you know creatures and multiple different ant types. Um, is there a lot of localized competition for this little niche space? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the case of the tree ferns, the the epiphytic ferns up in the trees. I think that the, there was competition there. We showed that, but it, it was an interesting system because, I, as I say, it wasn't a very tight mutualistic interaction. So I think that from the sort of ant point of view, if you like, uh, this was just another bit of kind of leaf litter, a bit like what you have down in the soil. So they were competing away with all of the other ant species and they weren't really uh, they weren't really kind of helping the fern to grow specifically. So, so yes, they were competing, um, but it wasn't a very strong mutualism, I think. In the case of, for example, these macaranga, so these more tightly associated ant plants, yes, there's definitely competition for living space inside those plants. So when the plant is young, you can have more than one different queen, sometimes from more than one different species, all colonizing the plant at the same time and sometimes those queens might band together and you would get a colony with multiple different queens um, but I think quite often as well you will get um, strong competition between those queens they will sort of send their workers out and attack each other and so on and in the end you'll just end up with one colony sometimes you also get a change in the species later on 
changing the species of ant later on. Once the plant has grown much larger, maybe one of the one species of ants that's sort of specialized on the younger trees will die and a new species will, will colonize, will, will arrive. Um, but as you can imagine, it's quite difficult to quantify all of this because it's happening inside these hollow stems of the trees. So you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see this going on directly. All that we really have are um, collections of the ants from trees at different stages of growth. And we have to infer what's going on in terms of the competition. How about amongst different ferns, do, um, do the ants travel from one fern niche to another and then attack other ants? Or do they, you know, when it's time to breed, do they breed amongst ferns or then venture out? Or do, do some creatures only stay in that niche forever as long as the niche exists? Yeah, so, so it, it, it's interesting, as you say, to think about the extent to which these little worlds up in the canopy are self-contained. Um, I think that they probably are for many of the smaller insects living inside them. For the ants, I, I think probably less so. So there will be, the you know, you, you get whole colonies of ants living inside the ferns and they will have, you know, they'll, they'll lay their eggs there, they'll raise their larvae there. Um, but when it comes to time to reproduce, then ants have, so, so worker ants, the, the ants that you usually see don't have wings and these aren't the ones that lay eggs. They will always be attached to a colony somewhere that's, that's living somewhere and this will have one or more queens so a, a reproductive individual that can lay eggs most of the eggs that these queens lay turn into workers some of them turn into uh, more winged reproductives and these will fly off they will mate with males who are also winged and then they will land and try and find another place to live so um, while one colony might stay in a single fern for um, for, for, for the entirety of its lifetime. Once it, it's time to sort of reproduce and start new colonies, I think the majority of these are going to be in new ferns elsewhere in the forest canopy, perhaps even up to hundreds of metres away. Um, one interesting thing that we did find was that there are some colonies of ants that, um, that, that, that rather than sort of moving and reproducing in this way, they will actually, uh, they can move as a whole colony. So the queens um, don't tend to have wings and the whole colony moves by walking. So they just up sticks, they bring all their larvae and pupae, um, all of their young, and then they will walk to a new site. And so uh, this has a disadvantage because they're not flying, they can't go very far, but the advantage is that they arrive at a new nesting site as a whole colony. So they're probably very good at competing um, in, an, in a new place. This isn't the case of just a single winged queen arriving and colonizing a new nesting site. Um, and a colleague of mine did an experiment where he removed all of the insects living inside ferns by submerging them in water and then putting them back up into the forest canopy. So this was a completely empty sort of island in the sky waiting to be colonized. And what was really interesting was we found that the first ants to arrive were these species that could move as a whole colony. And that's because they could arrive there as a fully fledged colony. And it was only later on that we found these other species that could uh, that would arrive just by, by by flying in so oh so it was uh, 
this niche was colonized how quickly? So the first the first sort of survey was after three months, and after three months, um, my colleague found all of the, the majority of the ants in there belonged to species which could do this movement as a whole colony. And then I believe the second survey, I wasn't involved in the fieldwork for any of this. I just identified the ants for him. Um, the second survey, I think, was nine months or a year later. And by that stage, it was colonized with pretty much the full group uh, of ants that you would expect in mature ferns that had been there for a long time. Very interesting. So what's the future of your research? Like over the next you know, year or so, two years, what, do you, what hypotheses are you testing? So we're working on a number of different things at the moment. Uh, I'm in the middle of a research grant where we're trying to build a global database of interaction networks. So data quantifying all of these things that we've been talking about in terms of the interactions between ants and plants, but across a whole wide range of different species. So we're looking at uh, herbivorous insects and the plants that they eat. We're looking at predators and prey and um, any kind of terrestrial, for now, interaction that you can imagine. We're gathering data from the literature, so we're not actually going out and doing any more fieldwork, which is quite convenient um, at the moment because no one's going out and doing any fieldwork. But by doing this, we're trying to answer questions about how these networks change uh, at global scales. Um, and this is a sort of a much broader focus than most of the work that I've been involved in for now. That grant, we're about halfway through at the moment, and um, and, and that sort of that, that seems to be going fairly well. We're drawing to a close in terms of collating all of the data and just starting our, our analyses. We recently got a new grant to look at uh, interactions between fungi and arthropods. And these are entomopathogenic fungi, which are uh, fungi that are sort of disease causing in insects. The most famous of these are the uh, the, the, fung the sort of zombie ant fungus, which um, you may have heard of. And these, um, these will infect um, an ant and then cause it to climb up into the understory of the forest, grip onto uh, the underside of a leaf and then die there and the uh, fungus fruiting body then sprouts from the ant and gives off its spores and the spores go and infect other ants but the really clever thing is that it, the fungus can manipulate the ant into climbing up the stem into an optimal position for the fungus to grow and be dispersed um, and it's not just ants that uh, these fungi affect it's a wide range of different arthropods and this new grant that we're we're just starting i'm just starting to do the recruitment for phd students for this um is looking at whether or not that might maintain the diversity of of insects and other arthropods in tropical forests and so that that might sound a bit strange because i've just told you that these fungi uh, attack and kill arthropods but our hypothesis is that these uh, that there will be a preferential attack on the most abundant species of arthropod in any one area. And that will mean that this species of arthropod can't completely take over. Its numbers will be knocked back down again. And so you'll end up with um, sort of rarer species of arthropod being able to survive by virtue of this attack 
by fungi. So we're going to test that in a range of different situations. We're going to look and see how changes in the fungus, uh, in abundance of this fungus in relation to elevation of, might kind of mediate this sort of effect. Also in terms of differences in land use change and logging of forest conversion to oil palm and so on. So yeah, so we're, we're just getting started with that project and I'm super excited about it. Uh, if, if any of your listeners are looking to do a PhD in, um, in tropical ecology, then please do apply. Uh, and then finally, I'm the sort of the, the thing that I'm look, looking forward to now is I'm interested in taking all of these lessons that we've learned about ecological networks and applying it to forest restoration. So as, as you know, the, so tropical forests around the world have been sort of exploited. Um, they've been had timber extracted and converted to various different kinds of plantation. But there's now a great deal of interest in trying to restore these habitats. And I'm interested in how network ecology can help us to do that. So you can imagine that um, understanding the way that species interacts is actually quite important for this. Your trees that are going to grow in this site, um, they need to have their pollinators. Uh, they need to have not too many herbivores, things eating their leaves. Um, some of them need mutualistic fungi that live on their roots. Some of them might need ants to come and live with them and help them and so on. Uh, so this, this is just at the very early stage of planning at the moment. Um, I'm looking to put, put in applications for research grants to start these projects at the moment. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Tom, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your research? So if they want, they can look on our website, uh, the, the group, group website back in Czech Republic that I co-run with Peter Klimesh. The web address for that is antscience.com. Uh, but if you want to find out more about uh, specifically about my research, then you can look at my website, which is tomfail.com. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Tom, it's been really interesting. Thank you for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Richard. It's been fun talking to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.